You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Healthcare is definitely one of the more dangerous areas that we have to be concerned about when it comes to cybersecurity and cyber attacks. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Caveat, the CyberWire's law and policy podcast. I'm Dave Bittner, and joining me is my co-host, Ben Yellen, from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Hello, Ben. Hi, Dave. On this week's show, I share a Washington Post story about the data your car may be collecting about you. Ben digs into some recent revelations about government surveillance. And later in the show, my interview with Jason G. Weiss. He's a former forensic expert with the FBI, and he's currently counsel at Drinker, Biddle, and Reef, where he focuses on cybersecurity and privacy law. While this show covers legal topics and Ben is a lawyer, the views expressed do not constitute legal advice. For official legal advice on any of the topics we cover, please contact your attorney. We'll be back after this word from our sponsors. With over 8,000 threat hunters analyzing over 65 trillion signals daily, Microsoft works tirelessly with the federal government to keep our nation's data secure. This 30-year-plus partnership is driving mission innovation that is secure by design. Whether optimizing your existing defenses or tackling advanced threats with AI, Microsoft gives you the intelligence and the automation you need to defend at mission scale. Let's work together to stay ahead of emerging threats and secure your mission anywhere. Learn more at aka.ms slash fedcyber. That's aka.ms slash fedcyber. And we are back. Uh, I'm going to start things off for us this week, Ben. Interesting story from the Washington Post. This is titled, uh, What Does Your Car Know About You? We Hacked a Chevy to Find Out. It's written by Jeffrey A. Fowler. And what they did was they dug into the sorts of details that a modern car collects on the driving habits of of its users. Spoiler alert, a lot. They collect a lot. <laughs> that's right. That's yeah. right. It's sort of a background here. Most modern cars that you buy today include some kind of internet connectivity. If it's not built into the car, if it doesn't have its own Wi-Fi hotspot or most of them have a 4G connection, it can have that connectivity via your own mobile device. So, for example, uh, I bought a car in the last year and it doesn't have its own connectivity, but when I plug my phone into it, it gets its connectivity from my phone. Right. The other thing is, uh, the first thing that my car does when I plug my phone in is it starts importing all of my contacts from my phone. Mm -hmm. Uh, And this is so that if I receive a call, the contact information pops up on the screen, which is convenient, but also... I don't remember giving it permission. <laughs> you certainly did not. Yeah, it also knows what music you like. Right, yeah. right. And and uh, this article goes into all the data that the car is collecting about our driving habits because modern cars have all of these sensors built in. They they know how fast you're going. They have G-force sensors. They measure the temperature. They, they have GPS sensors. So much of this data is being logged, and a lot of this data is being sent back to the manufacturers. 
And these manufacturers are selling this data to third parties. Uh, the manufacturers say that they anonymize the data. Uh, I will tell you that experts on these things uh, often point out that it can be routine and not that hard to de-anonymize data if you know what you're doing. Right. So that raises some issues as well. But this, this article uh, really digs into the amount of data that's being collected, the fact that the automotive manufacturers aren't obligated to really share with you what they're doing. And there isn't a whole lot of transparency here. There's not. You know, we should start out by saying there's no federal law in place that protects you from your automaker collecting this type of information. And the information is beyond just the contacts in your phone. One thing they were able to do through hacking into this infotainment system was get access to a lot of real-time location data or historical location data. Mm -hmm. So the gas stations that you have been to in the past several weeks, you start to think about how valuable that evidence might be to, say, a police department if... You know, you've been going around committing a bunch of crimes and we've right. seen cases come out of this in the past. It certainly made me happy that I have not yet bit the bullet and gotten rid of my early 2010s uh, <laughs> non-connected vehicles. Um, right, right. <laughs> now, from a legal perspective, you know, what can you do policy wise? California obviously has gotten off to the most promising start by passing their privacy statute. Um, by the time you listen to this, it's going into effect very soon, in about a week. And that privacy statute says that any company collecting your personal data must give you, the user, access to what data is being collected. Hmm. And GM, which is the manufacturer of the Chevy at issue in this article, says that they are complying with the California law, although... We don't know exactly what that means. But in other states, it kind of is the proverbial Wild West. Mm -hmm. There are very few limits on A, what they can collect about you, and B, whether there's any transparency as to exactly what they're collecting. And I think that presents major privacy concerns, particularly because eventually we're not really going to have much of a choice, right? So, mm. you know, my Honda Fit with a million dinks in it is going to die at some point. Right, it's going right. to be a, you know, a real bummer, but I'm going to have to get a new vehicle. And you go 20 years out, all these vehicles will be internet enabled. And in order to drive a car, which is one of the most basic things we do, we're going to be forced to submit a lot of very personal data about ourselves. Yeah. One of the interesting uh, items they had in this story was they bought one of these infotainment computers used off of eBay for a few hundred dollars. And they were able to extract from that used computer all sorts of information about a total stranger, where they traveled. She likes to call her husband Sweetie. Yeah, that, yeah from they, the phone information, they knew there was someone they called. And they also had the photo of that person who was called Sweetie. They could see gas stations that they bought gas, restaurants where they ate, and, and some uh, unique information about the phone they were using. One of the things that struck me, and, and I'll, I'll admit this is, sounds like something out of a, a movie script, but you know we're all very mindful of our phones and not losing our phones and so on and so forth. You know, I don't know about you, but when I go to sleep at night, my phone is sitting on the nightstand next to my bed. Same here. Charging. Yep. I think that's it's probably the case for most people. But my car is sitting out in front of the house. And so I, I, would, I thought about if my car contains all of this information about me, if someone wanted that information about me, and again, I know this is out of a movie, <laughs> but rather than having to go after my phone, maybe going after my car would be a good first place to look while I'm asleep 
you know, you can hook up my car or take my car away and bring it back before I wake up and gather all sorts of information yeah, that now, I've, I volunteered to my car via my phone. Yeah. Now, one thing this article does say is that whole process of obtaining that information would require both like physical access to the car for a long time. Right. And more than just general public knowledge about how to hack into one of these systems. So you need to have some expertise. If there are expert car hackers driving around your neighborhood, that, that could be a car, <laughs> uh, a cause for concern. You know, another thing from a legal perspective is we, of course, come back to what we've talked about a million times on this podcast, which is that third party doctrine. Right. This is the idea that a person does not have Fourth Amendment rights, uh, rights against unreasonable searches and seizures if they have voluntarily conveyed information to a third party. And that's on its face what's happening here. I mean, mm -hmm. you probably sign some sort of policy when you purchase the car. Certainly, if you use like an OnStar system, you've agreed to their terms and conditions and you are voluntarily conveying a lot of information to them. Yeah. And what the third party doctrine says is the government can't obtain that information without getting a warrant. So, you know, if they even have an inkling, uh, just some sort of reasonable suspicion that you've been going around on a crime spree, they can go to GM with a subpoena and say, give us data on all of the locations Dave has been in the last year. Right. And you wouldn't need any sort of traditional warrant to obtain that information. This, to me, is why the third-party doctrine seems outdated and limited. For one, it's not really voluntary because, as I said, eventually we're all going to have connected cars. Right. In order to be a, a functioning member of society, you're going to have to have these sort of connections. Exactly. Yeah. And in terms of the specific information we share, the most recent case dealing with this, which was Carpenter v. United States, in that case, the Supreme Court said that historical cell site data did have Fourth Amendment protection because of the broad nature of the data collected and the fact that it, it wasn't really collected voluntarily because a person's not actively pressing a button sharing their location data. Right. That seems to be exactly analogous to what's going on here. Hmm. It's not like you press the share my location button. Right. right. You're <laughs> tapping it every 10 minutes. Or exactly. Five That's just not what happens. Yeah. It's collecting that information from you whether you know it or not as soon as you connect to this car. So yeah. this is just another instance where I think that in entire legal doctrine needs reconsidering in an age where we submit so much to third parties that could reveal every intimate detail about our lives. And this just to me is your, your prototypical example uh, of that. Something I'm going to quote here from the article that uh, I found kind of humorous in its uh, circular sort of logic, I'll, and I'll ask you to unpack it. From the article, it says, GM's privacy policy, which the company says it will update before the end of 2019, says it may, quote, use anonymized information or share it with third parties for any legitimate business purpose, end quote. Such as whom, quote, the details of the third party relationships are confidential, end quote. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love that. I mean, so there are a couple of things that they could be trying to say there. Right. One is like theoretically when they sell your information to private third parties, yeah. there's going to be some benefit for you because it will probably improve the user experience you know, mm -hmm. one way or another. And that's ostensibly why they collect this data in the first place. So, right, right. 
That's good, I suppose. One thing it could also be saying is we're not going to hand over stacks of data to the government, but if they come to us with a valid subpoena, we're going to comply with them. We don't want to get in trouble with a, a local police department or the federal government. And that's the law, right? And it's I mean, the law. They're, they're obligated to do that. So. Absolutely. And you can understand why they want to keep these relationships confidential, because I think if enough users discovered how much information were being shared, those users might think twice about purchasing these vehicles. They might go to the used car lot and buy that, you know, 1992 Toyota with with Coca-Cola stains (laughs) in the backseat. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a funny thing to ponder. You know, could we be coming to this time where either there is a market for old cars that aren't connected or also, you know, I could see going to some back alley chop shop where some, you know, you go see the, the folks who have the skills to anonymize your car and stop it from transmitting and, you know, make like, yeah. allow you to operate within the shadows. The, cool, the coolest job that will exist uh, in the next several years. I mean, one thing right. this article does mention, if you plug in your device, as you said, they're going to collect that data as soon as you connect it to the USB port. And there is an app for you to wipe that data clean when, when you're done using the car. So, for example, if I go on a work trip and I'm renting a car, I plug in that iPhone. Yeah. It has access to all the conversations I've had over text message, my terrible music tastes, you know, uh-huh. some embarrassing uh-huh. songs in there probably. <laughs> right, right. And every location that I've been to on that trip. So there is an app. They, they mentioned this in the article called Privacy for Cars. It gives model by model directions on how to delete that data permanently. Um, after you're done using that vehicle. So there are workarounds. There are going to be more workarounds. You'd think that eventually the market will start to correct itself. If this becomes a big enough problem, then some enterprising person will develop security features that make sure that the data is anonymized and perhaps that minimizes the data that's collected uh, in each individual vehicle. Yeah. All right. Well, it's an interesting article, again, from the Washington Post. It's called, What Does Your Car Know About You? We hacked a Chevy to find out. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. That's my story this week. Ben, what do you have for us? This uh, article comes from the New York Times. It was released last week, written by Charlie Savage. There was this major report from the Inspector General's Office at the Department of Justice on the collection, uh, the electronic surveillance of a former member of Donald Trump's presidential campaign, Carter Page. Hmm. The way the process traditionally works is the FBI has to obtain a warrant from a secretive court, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, to conduct electronic surveillance. They put together an application, and the legal standard is the person that you want to surveil has to either... That you have to have probable cause that person is a member of a foreign power or more commonly an agent of a foreign power. Hmm. So they put together this application for Carter Page. It was accepted and it was subsequently renewed. What came out in this inspector general's report, and this got a lot of publicity, is a lot of the information that went into that application not only turned out to be false, but agents oftentimes omitted what would have been exculpatory information. They altered some of the data uh, to make the application seem less favorable to Mr. Page. Obviously, this got caught up in a political controversy because Page previously worked for, for Donald Trump's campaign, although the surveillance, I believe, began after he had left the campaign. So this was this sort of became a story that got bogged down in our political 
blogosphere or whatever it's called. Right. There is a broader lesson here, which I think it's important to look at. We rarely have an opportunity to see what goes into these FISA applications. It is a secretive court. The proceedings are secret. The process is secretive. So we as a society are relatively trusting that the process is going to work, that there's not going to be arbitrary surveillance based on faulty intelligence. And now we have this high profile case where there seems to have been an illegitimate process that led to surveillance that was not necessarily uh, warranted by the facts. And this does not just apply to Carter Page. That's the lesson I think that has to be taken away from this. I think now that we've looked under the hood, we have to reconsider the entire process in and of itself. The FISA court itself is very trusting of the FBI. They have a close working relationship. They will oftentimes ask law enforcement to provide additional information or to edit their application for surveillance in order for it to be reviewed. But there is sort of this level of trust that the FBI is going to be submitting accurate information. And now that we've seen in this high profile case that they don't, I think that's going to be an opportunity for all of us to reconsider this entire process. It just came out yesterday that one of the FISA court judges sent a letter to the FBI and basically said in the most colloquial terms possible, this was a major screw up on your part. <laughs> we are deeply concerned about it. And by the beginning of January, you need to write us and tell us exactly what you're doing to make sure that this does not happen again. And, you know, so I think that could have major implications for FISA going forward. In terms of how this is playing out and there being proper checks and balances and, and things in place, is this functioning the way that we would hope it would? You follow what I'm saying? Yeah. So it depends on how you <laughs> hope the, the system would, would function. Yeah. I mean, we want proper uh, surveillance applications to be accepted because this is a valuable counterintelligence tool. If somebody really is an agent of a foreign power and they're communicating with that foreign power, you know, even if that person is an American citizen, we, we would like to know about it. Theoretically, we have a process in place so this type of surveillance is not arbitrary. But there are flaws in the process. That's the bottom line here. One of the flaws is as we've seen here, the FISA court has sort of been what some would say overly trusting to law enforcement. Something yeah. like 99% of FISA applications are approved. Hmm. And again, this statistic might be a little misleading because there's often a back and forth, you know, before the application gets approved. But it is sort of known as being a, a rubber stamp of a court. There's one particular reason for that. These proceedings are non-adversarial. So the government comes in and they present this application to the FISA court. Here's all the evidence we got. Give us uh, this warrant for surveillance. There's nobody in that room representing the interests of Carter Page. There's nobody in there uh. saying, look, the information you have here is false. We have this alternative documentation that has exculpatory information. You've been disregarding it, ignoring it. The judge should decide based on the legitimacy of, of each side's case. That does not happen at the FISA court. Hmm. Congress passed a law a couple of years ago that said that the court can appoint what are called amicus, friends of the court. So your, your standard privacy and civil liberties uh, lawyers, maybe from the ACLU, will be appointed to come in and argue on behalf of the Carter Pages of the world, right. those who are being surveilled. But that provision only allows those sort of proceedings 
on issues that present a novel interpretation of the law. Hmm. And by definition, the vast majority of FISA applications aren't going to involve a novel interpretation of the FISA statute. So you're just not going to see that many proceedings that are adversarial. And if there's one benefit that, that comes out of this scandal in this inspector general report, perhaps there's going to be a reconsideration of having a system of non-adversarial proceedings. Hmm. I can imagine uh, the folks from the FBI who are looking for these warrants saying, you know, this is just going to slow us down. Time is of the essence. Overall, it's working the way it should. Uh, let's just continue the way we're going here. Yeah. I mean, the national security apparatus, and, and, and largely for good reason, is going to defend the surveillance regime because it is efficient. You know, there is a reason we don't have the same process for foreign intelligence as we do for you know, normal warrants for electronic surveillance, which require a hearing in front of a, a neutral judge, a public hearing, and a, a showing of probable cause that a person is actually committing a crime or, you know, is about to commit a crime. There's a reason that process isn't the same for foreign intelligence. We want to sort of get in on the ground floor before the foreign intelligence threat starts to develop. So in the example of Carter Page, we'd want to know that he was talking with Vladimir Putin before they actually plan something, you know, that would be uh, against American interests. And I certainly understand that instinct. But when you have this potential for abuse, uh, as we've seen here, I think, you know, it calls for some corrective measures. All right. Well, it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. Very uh, timely and interesting story there. Ben. Yeah. <laughs> you know, one thing I would say is there are a lot of people for various reasons who have been very trusting of the FISA process in the past. And this might be sort of the first time that they're even considering that the flaws in the process largely, perhaps maybe they're sympathetic to Carter Page or to the president, mm -hmm. um, which might just be the political opening the country needs to alter this process. Hmm. So that might be a, a positive to come out of this. Yeah. All right. Well, it is time to move on to our listener on the line. Our listener on the line calls in with this question. Here it is. Hey, guys. If a police officer stops me on the street, am I obligated to provide my ID? What about if I'm in my car? Thanks. Interesting question, Ben. What, uh, what do you make of this one? So it is a great question. There is a difference whether you are in a car or whether you are on the street. Okay. Um, in most states, when you're on the street, it is not a requirement that you show your ID, even if a police officer asks you. Now, that is not the case in many states, hmm. uh, which do require you to provide an ID. That There's a major difference when it comes to vehicles, because as part of a vehicle stop, law enforcement has the right to ask for your driver's license mm, mm -hmm. um, as proof that you can be driving on the road. Right. Um, so as a result, you are compelled to give them your driver's license uh, in that instance. If you do not, you could face some sort of criminal sanction. So, you know, I, I would check your uh, particular state law to see whether you are required to give ID uh, on the street. In terms of vehicle stops, you have to have a driver's license to drive and you have to present that if you're stopped by law enforcement in any capacity just because we want to make sure that people who are operating vehicles uh, have a license to operate those vehicles. So mm. in a vehicle, you are you are out of luck if you are trying to conceal your ID. You will well, have to show it. What about some of these videos I've seen on online where folks are being kind of adversarial with the police? The people in the car are saying, am I being detained? Am I being detained? Am I free to go? Am I free to go? You know, the, the officer is saying, uh, I want you to pull over, and they barely have their window open and things like that, and they're 
They're sort of going round and round about it. What's going on there? So there's a difference between whether you're required to give them your ID and whether there has been some sort of valid traffic stop. Uh-huh. The standard for traffic stops are incredibly low. You know, a broken taillight is justification for a traffic stop. Right. And once law enforcement has that justification for the stop, anything else they discover in the process of that stop is going to be, you know, admissible. You know, if they just smell drugs from your car or, you know, saw cocaine, you know, strewn across the across the passenger (laughs) seat, um, they might have just stopped you because of the broken taillight. But anything they see in there is fair game. In other contexts where you are not in a vehicle, it is always a legitimate question to ask whether you are being detained. Do I have the right to leave? This benefits you in a couple of ways. If they say you are not, then you are in police custody, which means generally they're required to redo your Miranda rights. Uh. Uh, And so you would be informed that you have the right to remain silent. I've watched enough Law & Order episodes to, to have <laughs> this memorized. That's, that's where you get most of your legal expertise spent exactly, from watching yeah. TV. I, I yeah. slept through law school, but <laughs> Law & Order, uh, that, that's where it's at. Right. <laughs> um, yeah, and they'll tell you you have the right to an attorney uh, as well. Hmm. Um, those rights do not attach if you're just chatting with a law enforcement officer. So if you are free to go, if you are not being detained, you probably uh, should shut your mouth if you think that something could come out that would incriminate you. What your legal rights are, and then there's the real world where if a police officer, I know for me, if a police officer stopped me on the street and, or, you know, we were having and said, hey, can I check your ID? I, I, there have been times in the past when I didn't really think about it. And I was like, yeah, sure. Here, here's my ID. You know, yeah, like, I mean, it's sort like, of, it's our natural instinct. They are people with badges and guns. Right. So we sort of instinctively want to comply with their orders and what we're being asked. And actually what a defense attorney would tell you is if you really want to protect your rights, you you don't give consent at any point, because once you give consent, that gives the police justification to, yeah. to search you and, and to, to do whatever you've consented to. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I guess I, I mean, I, I do realize that I, I have and I, I suppose you also share this privilege of being a middle aged white guy in a, in a relatively affluent suburb where at no point in my life have I really had any sort of adversarial relationship with law enforcement. So my instincts when it comes to my interactions with them are probably different from a lot of people's. And so, you know, we just need to be sensitive to that. Now, I'm sensitive to the fact that you called me middle-aged, but uh, (laughs) getting beyond that for a second. (laughs) uh, Speak for myself. Yeah, you you can't disentangle this. A youngster like you. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, But yeah, you can't disentangle this from broader questions of uh, bias among among law enforcement, which obviously exists. And it exists in our legal system, too. I mean, Police are allowed to stop and frisk people under reasonable suspicion that they have a dangerous weapon in quote unquote dangerous neighborhoods. The standard for dangerous neighborhood is often very racialized. Yeah. Um, And this is something that has had a, a disparate impact. So, you know, as much as you'd like to say that rules are rules and that they apply universally, I think, right, you know, yeah. we recognize that in the real world, meanwhile, they don't. Yeah. meanwhile, back in the real world. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and that's something, you know, you don't need to watch Law and Order for. You, you see it in the news every day and, and people have personal experiences yeah. uh, with it every day. Yeah. 
All right. Well, thanks to our caller for uh, for calling in with that question. We do appreciate it. We would love to hear from you. Our caveat call-in number is 410-618-3720. That's 410-618-3720. You can also send us an audio file. You can send it to caveat at thecyberwire.com and send it in. Perhaps we'll use it on the show. Coming up next, my conversation with Jason G. Weiss. He's a former forensic expert with the FBI. He's currently a counsel at a law firm where he focuses on cybersecurity and privacy law. We'll speak to him in just a moment. But first, a word from our sponsors. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contained threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. Ben, I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Jason G. Weiss. He had a career with the FBI. He was a forensics expert. Currently, he's a counsel at the law firm of Drinker, Biddle, and Reith, and he focuses on cybersecurity and privacy law there. Lots of interesting stuff Jason has to share here. Here's my conversation with Jason G. Weiss. The biggest issue we always struggle with is getting people to report the crimes to the FBI. Because a lot of companies are obviously afraid to report or make public the fact that they've been breached or hacked because they feel that will bring bad publicity to the company. And one of the things we worked very hard with the victims that we worked with was to reassure them that our job in the FBI was to help catch the bad guy, not to try and get in the newspaper and, and cause them any embarrassment. But obviously, people are nervous when law enforcement comes in. And I'd say that was probably one of our biggest challenges, because I think we brought a lot of value to the process. But sometimes there were companies out there that would rather take a loss than risk making something go public. Yeah, it's interesting to me. I, I almost feel sometimes like the FBI doesn't necessarily get the credit it deserves because so much of the work that you all do when you were with the agency is, is sort of behind the scenes. It is quietly working on those cases and going after the bad guys. I think that's such a fantastic question, and I really appreciate you asking that particular question because the one thing that always brought a level of indignation to the FBI, as it were, is I'll give you an example in the terrorism world or, or the healthcare world. It really doesn't matter. We almost never got credit for the cases that we were successful on, which is about 95% of the cases that we were. Most of the time when you hear about the FBI, it's because we've made a mistake or we didn't catch somebody. Bad news tends to make the news a lot better than good news. So I think your question is, is absolutely appropriate in the sense that you tend to only hear about mistakes or failures, not about like all the successes we've had. And, and terrorism is a great example. For every 20 cases that we solve, you know, if one person does get through and blow something up, that's all you're going to hear about for weeks and weeks and weeks. 
not the 20 people we took off the streets and the, and the attacks that we prevented. We hear from the sort of cyber criminal side of things that a big part of the explosion in cybercrime has been that a lot of these criminals feel as though they can operate with impunity, that they're going to be able to do the things that they're going to do and no one's going to come after them. They're not going to get caught. But is that itself a misperception? Absolutely. I mean, I can tell you, I've worked dozens and dozens and dozens of healthcare related fraud type cases when, you know, during my career. We take medical fraud, we take healthcare attacks very, very seriously, and we work a lot of them and we catch a lot of people. Once again, the ones we do well on don't always make the news, but it's a huge priority to the FBI without any doubt at all. I mean, I could tell you over the last few years, over 70% of all U.S. healthcare providers in the country have probably been breached in one fashion or another. And that's the highest number of any industry out there. So it, it is a huge priority and a huge problem for law enforcement. And it's not real different on the civil side. There are a lot of problems the healthcare industry has to undergo because they have certain weaknesses that other industries don't have that makes them far more susceptible, even on the private sector side of the coin, to cyber security and cyber attacks. What kind of weaknesses do they have? Well, for example, I mean, they run hospitals. And I mean, that's a classic example. If, if they fall victim to a ransomware attack where they lose access to their data, not only do they lose access to their data, which might be critical if they're trying to perform life-saving surgery, but a lot of times cyber attacks will shut down equipment. And this equipment could be critical. So hospitals and healthcare providers in particular are in a unique situation where they really have to balance the cybersecurity aspects of what they're doing versus the life or death decisions that they have to make every day. I mean, if you go into a, the retail clothing industry and you know there's a ransomware attack and a store can't sell a shirt, well, that's certainly not good for the store. People's lives aren't at stake. But when you're dealing with the healthcare industry in particular, these attacks are far more dangerous to people because imagine if it was your day to have your you know your heart surgery and there's an attack at the hospital that prevents the hospital from conducting the surgery i mean that could lead to death you know what i'm saying in a situation where otherwise the surgery would take place so it's a huge problem the fbi enforces probably 300 different violations and i probably work most of them in my job is in the technology part of the fbi and i can tell you healthcare is definitely one of the more dangerous areas we have to be concerned about when it comes to cybersecurity and cyber attacks. What about on the regulatory side of things? I'm wondering, how do things like data theft or ransomware, how do they intersect or clash up against regulations like HIPAA? Well, that's a great question. You know, HIPAA secures, as it were, provides a legal protection for people's medical information, but that doesn't help you when the information's stolen. Because if the hacker or the bad guy is able to steal your healthcare information, inside your healthcare information is a lot of your identity information, which leads to a lot of identity theft. And you know, hospitals have to be able to share this information, so their networks have to really be pristine and secure. Because you go into one doctor, but that information has to be transferred off to the hospital where the surgery is taking place. It's all done digitally and electronically now. It's, it's very rarely do you see people carrying folders from one place to another. And if that information is stolen, it really, really opens people up to identity theft. And let's be honest, if you're just recovering from open heart surgery, is that the time that you want to call and try and figure out why your identity has been stolen? You have much greater problems to deal with in terms of trying to get yourself back to health. So I think your question is great. I mean, ransomware is a little bit different because ransomware isn't stealing data, it's encrypting and 
the data and preventing the healthcare provider from accessing the data. Would a healthcare provider be faced with sort of a double whammy if a bad guy stole some data and then threatened to, say, release it publicly? Obviously, you have the, the problem of the stolen data, but then would they also be liable for some sort of HIPAA violation because they didn't properly protect the data in the first place? Without a doubt, and it's actually going to become much more severe starting January 1st with the uh, introduction of the California Consumer Privacy Act. Hmm. which creates a private right of action for companies that are breached. So before, while you had to deal with general breach issues like notification and stuff like that, now you're opening yourself up to private liability. Now, HIPAA data is exempt from the CCPA, but there's hmm. other information that is not. So this is really going to provide a lot of exposure, and by that I mean negative exposure, to uh, every business in California, and, and certainly no different from the healthcare world. I mean, granted, the HIPAA information itself is exempt, but a lot of the other data, like employee data, customer data that isn't HIPAA-related, is certainly not exempt. So we're opening up a Pandora's box of liability, without a doubt. I mean, it's opening up a whole new front in the cyber wars. There's no question about it. You are uh, no longer with the FBI. You're at a law firm now. What sort of advice are you giving your clients to help them prepare for things like CCPA? That's a fantastic question. We are working diligently with clients to help them prepare. The CCPA goes into effect on January 1st of 2020. And I think I read an article recently where 60% of the businesses out there haven't even heard of the CCPA yet, you know, let alone prepared for it. And it's it's going to open up a floodgate of litigation, in my opinion, that isn't going to do the state a whole lot of good. It's already expensive enough here in California. And I think we're going to be raising the prices just dealing with the cost. I think they guesstimate that the cost of coming into compliance with the CCPA for most businesses are going to range anywhere from 60 to $100 billion alone. And mm. with the private right of action threat hanging over the head, these companies, especially the healthcare industry, are really going to have to make sure their networks are secure because breaches are going to become a lot more expensive than they were on December 31st. Do you think that these sorts of gestures towards improved privacy are necessary? That's a difficult question. I mean, like everything else, you try to find a happy medium between, you know, and I'll give you a perfect example. People ask what we can do in the FBI to keep the country safe. The FBI can absolutely keep the country safe if you're willing to trade convenience for security. Mm -hmm. And I don't believe in the privacy realm, the dichotomy is any different. If you want to keep data safe and private, you can certainly do that, but it's going to be difficult and it's going to be expensive versus the alternative of not securing the data and then dealing with the problems of identity theft, data theft. The key is to find that happy medium. It's, you know, as a business, it's, it's being able to secure your network you know, in a way that your company can secure the data without making the cost so exorbitant that they have to be passed on to the clients, which obviously hurts business other ways, where the cost of doing business goes up greatly. And I think that's one, going to be one of the fallouts of the CCPA. These costs, these, this $100 billion in startup costs is going to have to be passed down to somebody and it's customers that are going to be paying that. So obviously that's very disappointing. Yeah. And do you suppose this is going to serve as sort of a, a test bed for the rest of the nation? You know, where, where California goes, so goes the rest of the U.S.? You know, I couldn't have said it better myself. The problem is currently there is no federal privacy law and you have 50 states passing 50 laws, which is going to be very difficult for multi-state businesses that do business in multiple states. They're going to have to come in compliance with all these privacy laws. And then when you throw on the GDPR and the European requirements for the businesses that work internationally, privacy is going to become the new norm of the 21st century. 
And companies are really going to have to put a concerted effort into dealing with privacy as a primary concern with how they conduct their business. You know, I, I'm curious from your, your perspective, both with the, the time you spent at the FBI and now working in, in the legal arena, what sort of advice do you have for organizations to better protect themselves? Are, are there things that you run across regularly where you, you think to yourself, boy, if only people did this better, we, we'd all be a little better off? Like when I talk to clients and, and when I give presentations, I always tell people there's two types of cyber defense that you need to be aware of. The first one is your traditional IT defense, making sure your IT department is up to speed and has the proper network configurations. And, you know, we, we, you know, we try and tell people, look at the NIST standards, look at the ISO standards, try and fit within those frameworks to keep your network as safe and secure as possible. That's critical. It's critical that the IT folks have set up a network that doesn't have gaping holes in it. And so the attack matrix against the network is as slim and as small as possible from a pure cybersecurity standpoint. What we want to do is we want to push out what we call script kitties. But there's a lot of businesses that buy these security devices and don't realize they're turned off when you buy them right out of the box. You got to turn them on. You got to configure them. You got to learn how to make them work. If you do all that, it makes your network a lot safer, but it, it costs money and it costs time and it costs effort, but it's effective. The other, and I think this is just as important as, as your IT security, is your social awareness and your employee training. And, and that's something I, I can't stress enough is training employees because people don't realize probably 80% of all cyber attacks take place behind the firewall, you know, which means they're, they're either quote unquote inside jobs or you have careless employees or inside nefarious employees that are helping somebody on the outside. And you really want to work to make sure your employees understand how to prevent malware and ransomware from even entering a system in the first place. And I can give you a great example. When I was in the FBI, one of, one of the cases we worked on was somebody had sprinkled uh, thumb drives around a parking lot of a business. And it, it was very clever. And it's the first time I'd ever seen that because they, you know, they rely on good Samaritans like me and you to say, oh, somebody dropped a thumb drive. That's probably important to them. So what's your initial thought is let me put the thumb drive in the computer and see if I can identify who owns it. But what you're doing is you're inserting malware directly into the computer now from behind the IT configuration firewalls, right? Mm. You, you've already gone behind the Maginot wall, as they say, and you're and you're putting these thumb drives in the machine. And these are the things we have to train employees, and especially in the healthcare industry, to be concerned about. Because we've got to prevent unnecessary intrusions from happening. And the way to do that is to train your employees that when they get a a spear phishing email or a phishing email or even a whaling email to a company executive, that if they don't recognize who that email is coming from or where that what that link is, is they shouldn't click it. Because once you execute those programs behind the firewall, that's what is the foundation of both ransomware and malware and a lot of the things that cause healthcare industries incredible problems. I mean, I don't know if people realize, but in 2016 alone, I was just doing a little research on this. Over 11 million healthcare records were stolen from within the United States. And of the top three breaches that have taken place in this country since 2016, I think, in fact, the top three have all related around healthcare industry breaches. So, I mean, obviously, healthcare industry is a huge, healthcare, the healthcare industry is a huge target. And yeah. they've got to be very, very careful. And, and I'll tell you, there's one other area where I think uh, health, the healthcare industry really needs to focus its security concerns on is it's kind of a new phenomenon called medjacking. I don't know if you've ever heard of that term. It kind of evolves from what's called the Internet of Things. You know, like you put a thermostat in your house or a refrigerator on the Internet. The security on those things are terrible. So people can hack into your thermostat or your refrigerator because there's almost no security whatsoever. Now, the problem with medjacking is hackers have figured out a way 
to hack into prosthetic devices, pacemakers, and devices provided by hospitals and are given to people to help keep them alive and, and convenient. And the problem with these devices is a lot of these devices don't have very extensive cybersecurity measures built into them because really they were not designed for that purpose. But can you imagine what would happen if somebody could hack into somebody's pacemaker and the control they would hold over that person in terms of threats? Yeah, it's a totally different level of ransomware. Absolutely. I, I couldn't put it better myself because imagine if you were a pacemaker and somebody's able to hack into your pacemaker and say, if you don't pay me, I'm going to turn your pacemaker off. I mean, that could literally kill you. So medjacking to me, I think is going to be one of the big cyber threats you're going to see coming probably over the next few years. Because when, as companies, especially with all the military prosthetic devices and stuff like that, a lot of these devices have chips and have you know, firmware and BIOS and, and have these type of items already included in there. But the security on them is not very astute. And so I think they're going to open themselves up to potential liability and other problems if we're not able to create medical devices and have some reasonable level of cybersecurity defenses built into them as well. All right, Ben, what do you think? Well, uh, always good to hear from somebody who has a wealth of experience in uh, public and private sectors. Yeah. Working over 800 cases that he said have some sort of cyber element to it. It's it's not often that we get to talk to people who have that sort of experience right. with uh, cyber-related litigation. So very thankful for that. Just a couple of interesting things that stuck out to me. There's this misconception that he talked about that cyber criminals are sort of immune. They're not going to get caught. It's a... You know, an area of criminal law where you can avoid detection. Mm -hmm. um, you know, as he said, the FBI catches a lot of people. We don't hear about it as much because per our earlier segment in this very podcast, we talk about it when they screw up and not when they do something right. Right. And right. I think that's very fair, <laughs> fair to point out. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, the other thing that stuck out to me is how damaging cyber incidents can be, particularly in the health industry, not just in the quantity. And I, I guess I hadn't seen the statistic that 70% of health systems uh, have been breached in the past several years. Mm -hmm. I don't know exactly what the time frame was. Yeah. Um, that's a, that's a very high percentage. And then, you know, what the consequences of that could be when we talk about shutting off people's pacemakers, like the, this, these are uh, life and death decisions. It is such a, it's a large sector. I think it's one sixth of our national economy. Wow. And it is uniquely prone uh, to these threats. So I think that was eye opening. What do you think about what he was talking about with CCPA and how uh, that could potentially open the floodgates for litigation? I think it's accurate. Um, as he said, the private right of action is going to be something that bugs the living you-know-what out of the tech companies. Hmm. They are under great incentive to make sure their systems are secure because any person who suffers from a data breach of one of these companies is going to have the right to sue under under California law. And mm -hmm. it really could cause a floodgate of, of litigation. The argument is whether that floodgate of litigation is worth it. Is it valuable right. to the consumer? There are certainly arguments both ways. Um, you are holding these companies accountable and you are providing them increased incentives to take ap appropriate security measures. Yeah. But there's also, you know, and this applies to basically all torts, there's a tort tax, you know, and the tax is the cost of compliance. So every dollar they have to spend on increasing their compliance is going to end up costing the consumer one way or another. So it's just sort of depends on your particular persuasion as to whether the costs outweigh the benefits. There's a reason why 
the other 49 states have not passed versions of the CCPA. Mm-hmm. I mean, it largely has to do with the fact that it does bear significant costs, whether those costs are, are worth it or not. Mm-hmm. And time will tell. Well, we don't know how this will come out on balance. We'll no. have to see. No, it'll be uh, one of the intriguing subplots of the 2020 season of <laughs> California. Right, right, you know. right. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. The Caveat Podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our thanks to the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security for their participation. You can learn more at mdchhs.com. Our coordinating producers are Kelsey Bond and Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Ben Yellen. Thanks for listening. <laughs>